This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, is knowledge decaying? The material in our known universe decays over time. Scientists measure the rate at which this material decays by how long it takes for half of the material to decay. It's called half-life. Like elements, ideas, and knowledge have half-life. There is indeed a half-life of knowledge, which is the time it takes for half of everything we know to either be wrong or outdated. It's a phenomenon that makes it seem like everything is possibly wrong. It makes us question the world around us. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the half-life of knowledge shows us that we're on a journey. In this episode, we talk about the idea that knowledge too decays. We talk about practical applications like health and fitness, medicine, engineering, and the history of science. Welcome in episode 59 of Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, decision-making, and today a, a podcast about knowledge, Chris, knowledge. We're going to learn some things about how people learn some things today. This is, this is a really interesting topic. I first learned about it on a British quiz show. I saw that. QI. I, I figured that's where this funny. came from. I saw that on the internet. I was like, that mother, he got this from that QI. I, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's kind of a good thing I'm a teenager because only... About half of my personality comes from watching that show instead of the whole thing. Oh, that's good. Very, very funny show. Very informative show. Sure. Uh, and as we'll learn, it has some implications about uh, how dearly or maybe not dearly we should cling to the things we believe, the things we think we know. Yeah, I think I think so. And, we're, and it makes a ton of sense if you look backward throughout time. You're like, hey, you remember the Earth was flat? And that's a great example for this. It's it's not what you don't know. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. That's but right. first, Chris, we have our first advertiser. Um, not really. It's not an advertisement. It is an, 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 an endorsement of sorts. Do you, We all remember Justin from our Price is Right episodes. Justin was, I believe, the second guest we had on the show. We had our friend Trent to talk about the hunting lottery mess in Wyoming in the West. And then right. we had on Justin, I think, I want to make sure I get his last name right, because I always, I always butcher this kind of thing. It's like Bergner. Yes, Justin Bergner. And he wanted to discuss uh, how everyone is playing The Price is Right wrong. Yes. Yes. He, uh, Justin is doing, has been doing, and probably continues to do some really fascinating research. And he, he's put it into this book. Uh, and he, he went through and just examined how people bet in The Price is Right, and he kind of used some game theory to demonstrate that uh, people don't really maximize their full potential, and they have right. interesting betting strategies, and uh, if they played things a little bit more rationally, a little bit more game theoretically, uh, they might do a little bit better. So the name of the book is The Price is Wrong, Bitch. Uh, no. <laughs> the name of the book is... <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's Bob Barker's autobiography. Bob. Little uh, Happy Gilmore quote there for you. So the name of the book is Solving the Price Right, How Mathematics Can Improve Your Decisions on and Off the Set of America's celebrated game show so that book uh is available for purchase in our show notes if you want to buy it and support justin of course we're not endorsing the book right meow 
because we haven't read it. But we're going to read it. Our copies are on the way, and at which point we were endorsed it. But we were going to endorse him. That was a great episode and a fascinating. The everybody, yeah. oh, uh, I, I believe he says everybody underbids, uh, which is really an interesting thing because they're so worried about overbidding. They, it's kind of a Justin or a J- James Holzhauer situation in Jeopardy where people don't aren't mathematically thinking through the best strategies. Um, I think this book would be great for all of the nerds in the betting community, the sports gambling, the poker community. Like this is exactly in their wheelhouse of like, holy shit, people are just they're anchoring to numbers that aren't true. They're they're over they're underbidding or, or whatever all the time. So we gotta gotta get this book, and I'm definitely gonna read it. So I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I'm very, very happy that uh, that the work has continued, and we're excited to read the book. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is exactly the kind of research that uh, is. I don't know if gambling degens need any more help being aggressive with their money. Yeah, uh, but I do think it could help people maximize and, and, and understand when biases may or may not be in play. Uh, the anchoring thing was was the most fascinating thing to me about that episode. People yeah. anchored to the first thing that somebody says. I, I I think that's just the most interesting thing. So we're excited about the book. I uh, really appreciate uh, and uh, well. Professor Bergman, <laughs> Bergner. I think he. Uh, I think Professor yes. Bergner. Sorry, it's one of those things where I. Yeah, no. I. I. Uh, the first. The first part of the Berg name is one that could be could go any yes. direction. So I'd never remember yep. who is who. <laughs> that's that's been my problem with. Well, and, and recently I, I work with a Bergman. So yeah, I mean there are many Bergs. It's a. I mean it's. it's I think it's a Central European. Just language. I can only apologize. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that is our first uh, advertisement, and we endorse Justin. We will endorse the book once we read it, I am sure. You can buy it. Also, I believe the episode was like 25 or something. We'll link to it in the show notes if you want to re-listen to that episode. We are going to start republishing some old episodes occasionally, probably around this fall, uh, for all those of you that are joining us and some of our... Our better episodes happened back in the day, and as the the audience grows exponentially, we, of course, wanted to welcome you into all of that. And that brings in, before we get to the half-life of knowledge, Chris, I wanted to... I've been thinking about maybe we should use our little community here, Player 3, everybody. We've gotten some nice emails and some DMs and things. Should we discuss which charities we want to support as a show over time? I think I think we should. I think we should do one that's like a really sad thing and then we should do one that's kind of like a nerdy thing that we support <laughs> like people who have a belt that been dealt a really shitty hand of cards like uh, for a disease or something we should kind of discuss that and then perhaps maybe also like chess clubs or library cards or something yeah i i, I definitely think that's worth doing like uh, look people who have the the capability to help have the responsibility to help. i agree and uh we, we we like to invite everybody player three we, we think giving to charity should be a part of everybody's life everybody who can afford it and so yeah i think we I think we got to do yeah, that. Let's take some pitches on that. And you and I will discuss over time and maybe we'll set a goal of like June ish. We'll have like, okay, these are the two or three things that we're going to support for a number of years and we'll see, we'll see what we can do to help. Okay. Yeah. Chris, players, uh, so player three, send us your suggestions. If there are any charities that are near and dear to your heart, we'll, uh, we'll discuss them and we'll make some decisions. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll support it for, for, for a long time. And we've done some episodes that are interesting and maybe um, we could get, get on board with, and some things that are kind of shitty and, Got a lot to talk about with medicine and the war in Ukraine and stuff to con- continuing on. So, okay, let's get into well, one thing we well, yeah. one thing we don't need a, oh. a charity for is uh, you, you know those lions glasses donators that you can go like, <laughs> yeah. like a pizza yeah. huts or whatever yeah. donate your old glasses. We do not need one of those anymore. Uh, so, for those of you who are concerned about Nick's eyewear, so you can watch uh, the show on YouTube.com. Yes, uh, game highly recommend for this episode. Yeah, go, go to YouTube.com, find the channel, subscribe, watch this episode because uh, for the first time I think ever in his life, uh, Nick's eyewear is actually working for him. So I have a, a pair of plastic clear frame glasses, and they are essentially fire as long as you wear something and have a beard all the time. And these are not my first pair of these. My first pair of these were pre. Um, were, were, were pre-surgery before I had my transplants, and, and we'll get into that perhaps one day. But 
I had another one of them and those were prescription. These are reading glasses, which I need, um, you know, to read and see things. So my original pair of clear frame glasses, Chris, I once got the highest paying acting job I got in my life was because I auditioned with clear frame glasses and they made it like fucking clear that like it wasn't me at all and bring the glasses. Amazing. That, that's like, hey, we're Are you serious. Yes, it was an enormous. For me, it was it was like three grand for a shoot. It was a national untuck it commercial. The, um, <laughs> you know, the, the the shirts that you don't have to tuck in. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, and uh, the shoot started at get this eleven thirty p.m. at night. Um, I but it was like real acting. It was like a thing. I'd never got a copy of it. It may or may not be on the internet. It's actually harder to get shit that you're in than you'd think that goes to the agency and stuff, but. Yeah, they didn't care about me. They cared about these fire glasses that you can see on YouTube.com. All right, let's get into this this half-life of knowledge. This is a math episode for all of you that understand math. Uh, we, we're going to try to do these math episodes as often as we can. This idea, um, first of all, let's start off with what is the half-life of knowledge? And will you please, for those of us that got in and out of science class, what the fuck is half-life? I never remember. So, okay, so... The half-life of knowledge is this super interesting concept about, it, it's really about like the, the general body of knowledge that we as like species have mm. collected through the process of scientific experiment and observation. Right. So in, in general, generally speaking, a half-life is the time that it takes for something to decay away so that half of the original amount is remaining. So if on day one, you measure 100 grams of a substance, then on some other date, you measure 50 grams of that substance because half of it is decayed away, then that time period that it takes between those two measurements, that's the half-life. And the, the most common thing I think that people associate with half-life is probably radioactive decay. I think that's generally like in the public conscience. So like you, you get like radioactive material. Well, as it decays, the substance that was originally there is changing. And so you can measure how fast that decay happens and how radioactive the substance is by how long it takes for half of it to disappear. And so a substance can have multiple half-lives because if you start with X amount and you go to half that amount, well, then the next half-life is going to be half the second amount. So if for our 100-gram example, you got 100 grams. After a certain period of time, there are 50 grams left. Mm -hmm. Well, after that same period of time, the time stays the same, but the proportion, uh, because the proportion also stays the same. So after the, a second half-life, 50 is going to go to 25. Right. And then after another half-life, 25 is going to go to 12 and a half. And it's okay. so on and so on and so on. Until you get to like a, a, a diminish, like a minuscule amount it's left. It's an and asymptote, it's gone. right? Yes. Yeah, it's one, it, it, that, that's exactly right. You know, because because it's like physical matter, generally speaking, like with radioactive material or with like a like some kind of chemicals, chemicals decay, biological, uh, biomolecules decay. Uh, because it's an actual substance, it, theoretically, it can go to zero. It's not like a mathematical thing. But, you know, functionally... The, the graph looks yeah. exactly like an asymptote. Yeah, so the, for those of you that don't remember, zero. this is an audio medium. An asymptote is a kind of graph that curves, like it's, it's, it's starting out like it's going to go to zero, and then it infinitely curves and never quite touches that line. So it goes straight down, then it kind of curves and just infinitely gets slower, slower but it'll never cross over, theoretically. Um, that's an asymptote, so you, can, so you can visualize that. So I've never understood Half-Life. I know that in science for me, it was always strange. I really hated like uh, micro science because I can never visualize what was going on. I understand like, I like, well, the half-life is this, and this is how you measure, measure radioactivity. It's like, well, what the fuck do you mean? It's just gone. Like, it's just gone. Like, what are you talking about? Where does it go? And I, I, that's, I know that's radioactivity and I don't get it. And I don't want to spend too much time here, professor. <laughs> but I, I, under, I understand theoretically that the half-life of a material, it just evaporates. But the half-life of knowledge, my first question was like, how can this be a thing? Because 
it doesn't evaporate. It is, was simply incorrect. So something new replaces it. It's not quite radioactive decay because it just is replaced with something else, right? It's like up and down and up and down. Well, in a way, uh, you know, sometimes the, the theories aren't necessarily like replaced with a different theory. It's more like uh, the information or, or, or facts that we collect uh, are improved or slightly adjusted or we know to a more precise degree or we have a better explanation of how we get from A to B. Uh, th- we're, we're talking about something that's an example of a, a field of study called scientometrics. Yes. Uh, so scientometrics is the field of study that is concerned with like measuring scholarly literature. So yep. it's like people who do studies and get published. Uh, scientometrics studies those journals and studies those publications. So it's kind of like a meta-analysis of like the, the basic scientific research that, that takes place. So when you consider the half-life of a material, you can like calculate how long it'll take for a percentage of the material to be left based on how long the original half-life is. Uh, the half-life of knowledge is basically the same thing. So it, the, it, the half-life of knowledge, um, and I'm quoting directly from Wikipedia here, mm-hmm. It's the amount of time that has to elapse before half of the knowledge or facts in a particular area is superseded or shown to be untrue. And yeah. th- th- this is the most interesting thing because, like like you said, I mean, you think of a material that decays away, you can physically measure that. If you have yeah. a mass of stuff, you can put it on a scale and say, like, look, see, there it is. But with knowledge, it's, I think, a little bit more difficult to quantify that because you can't, like, there's not, like, a list of facts. You know, information isn't laid out in nice, neat little nuggets that you can easily just digest one at a time and then suddenly you know science it's much more interrelated and it's much more complex. And, and another issue is that it's constantly evolving. I mean, the, the scientific base of knowledge that we have in a given, given subject area is continuously changing because people are doing research on it all the time. People yeah. are interpreting the evidence and interpreting the, interpreting the same results differently all the time. And I, I think it's just the most extraordinary phenomenon. And you got to consider like, well, this has really big implications for kind of the way we understand ourselves in the world, but also certainly about the way we make decisions and compete and produce strategies. Yeah. So I uh, found the TED talk for the guy that wrote the book called the half night, half life of facts. And the guy that wrote the book called the half life of facts, which I should probably find his name at some point. Um, This guy, I think it was uh, 2013. I think the half life of facts. Well, so the first, the first guy who, uh, the, to whom the phrase half-life of knowledge nice. is attributed to is this guy, this economist named Fritz, Fritz Machlup. Nice. He, was, uh, he was looking at the, eco- the economic value of knowledge uh, in the 1960s, and he was trying to figure out how, how much does, is it worth to acquire certain types of knowledge and kind of comparing them to each other. And that, that's a really important concept, too, because like, it, it, we, we talk about science, we talk about physics, we talk about the decay of knowledge and ideas, but that also applies to economics as well. I mean, what's, what's this thing they say about buying a new car? The second you drive that car off the lot, it's worth immediately half of its value because uh, of yeah. depreciation. Sure. Um, so while it's not exactly the same mathematical one-to-one construct, it, it is a really similar idea, and you get a lot of the same kind of like decay curves in terms of value. So this guy, for instance, Fritz Machlup was looking at like, okay, how much is it worth to go out and acquire knowledge versus like wait for knowledge to change? Like what's the, what's the depreciation value of new information about different subject areas? So I think that's where that phrase actually comes from. Yeah. And I think, again, it's really interesting to me because it's not, it's, it's, it's both something could possibly be untrue, but also something could be just incorrect and then it becomes corrected and then it doesn't decay. It kind of morphs into something else like the, the law of conservation of ideas, I guess you could call it. But this is all very convoluted, Ooh, that's a, that's theoretical. A good, Do you like that? That's a very I've, good like 
That's a scientific. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm reading. Uh, the, 2023 has been the year of sci-fi fantasy for me. Love it. Uh, that, that's a very sci-fi fantasy. Uh, like you could see somebody like, oh yes, the great theoretician. Nick uh, you want to know something fun? Is that I started working on a sci-fi book in 2010 as a, when I wanted to be a novelist. I have fifty thousand words written, and that is where that's from. So wow. that's on a Google Drive somewhere. I don't know where. I just know that I have Pretty to pay two ninety nine for it now <laughs> to store <Great>. my shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks google oh, oh yeah absolutely. I, gotta, so, I gotta pour my coffee uh yeah though chris is making french press um that's right <laughs> live on camera so right. well, I'm, the, I'm trying to keep up with the uh with with the glasses based douche factor yeah by, so i i am yeah they, these are I, they were the nicest ones available at the grocery store <laughs> <laughs> well this uh coffee was the third nicest one available mm. at the grocery store but i mix it in it's, well, it's a quick quick story time quick diversion time yeah uh, I mixed it in today with a pack of Swiss Miss dark chocolate. Ooh. And uh, one time I did that when I was working at the mines. Uh, I worked at the mines for a little bit. And this guy was, I was in a meeting doing this. And this guy was like, oh, yeah, what branch were you in? I said, oh, no, I'm working in the technical department. He's like, no, I mean, what branch of the service? Sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Is that a, thing? Said, oh, Is that a military thing? I guess. He's like, yeah, I've only ever seen military folks uh, like that recipe saved my life in Afghanistan. Or It's like, it's like sorry, man. I wish I could, uh, That's wish could relate. So if, if anybody out there is listening yeah. who is a, a, in the service or B has, and B has a significant relationship with the coffee hot chocolate recipe, uh, please tell me about that because I was very put off and I was very embarrassed not to have served my country. Yeah, that, that actually, like, well, yeah. I, I can't. In college, it was like, it was like an intern, and yeah, it's like yeah, I, I oh, man, I just did not feel the call. So shout out to everybody who did, but uh, yeah, it was not me. Sure. So I'm 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 basically co-opting this recipe, or or, or it's a good way to shout them out. Um, see, this it's all about spin zone. Talk to the PR guy first. So <laughs> spin, spin zone. Uh, this is all very convoluted scientific mumbo jumbo. Let's talk about practical applications and exactly what we're talking about. So this guy yeah. gives this TED talk, Samuel Arbsman, I believe it was. He wrote the book called The Half-Life of Facts based on the half-life of knowledge, this theory from about 60 years ago or so. And he gives this TED talk in 2013. And then this idea kind of goes away because again, it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. I don't really care. So, let's, But let's talk about what's happening because you can see it happening in real time. So he's got this quote in the TED talk that I find really fascinating. It's from Isaac Asimov. Asimov? Asimov. I don't know. When people thought the earth well, was flat. Hold on. Hold what? on. You, you know who Isaac Asimov is, right? I'm pretty sure I've heard that name before. It sounds like a chess guy. He's one of the foundational sci-fi authors of all time. And yeah. he's like a science. He, he was both a science writer. I, I, I don't know what his scientific credentials were exactly, but he knows a lot about science and he did a lot about science writing. And he has a huge corpus of phenomenally influential scientific. Holy shit. He wrote iRobot? He wrote iRobot. He wrote Foundation. He wrote all kinds of stuff. He wrote. Uh, I bet a lot of li listeners will know. Uh, he wrote a really famous uh, short story called "The Final Question," which is yeah. really really interesting. And it's about like how do we solve entropy? Like we figured everything else out. We have a supercomputer, and the AI can figure out all this stuff. So let's ask it like, what's the deal with entropy? Uh, really really interesting story. I won't spoil it because you can find it on the internet. What's and read entropy? It in like fifteen minutes. Entropy is uh, is a quantification of like the order or disorder in a given system. So it's like how many ways can you arrange different states? So oh. it's like if you have three objects, yeah. you can place them in a line, you can place them in different shapes, you can right. place them in a row, you can do whatever you want with them. So it's like all right, extrapolate that out to like all right, you got a million gazillion gas particles in a tube. 
right, yeah. how many states can you put those things in? Like, oh. And I'm not talking about just like their positions. I'm talking about like their velocities and I'm talking about their relationships with each other. Like are they bonded to each other? All kinds of stuff. So they quantify that with uh, mathematical value entropy. And actually, while we're on it, entropy is the probably the chief physical quantity in the universe that describes the flow of time. So time is defined uh, by increasing entropy. So if you decrease entropy, you're actually going backward in time. But you can decrease entropy inside a system at the cost of energy and entropy elsewhere. So you can like increase the order of a thing, but that requires you to exert energy, and that energy is imperfect, and it creates inefficiencies, and so there's energy loss, and that energy loss contributes to more entropy gain outside the system. Because the, the energy has to go somewhere. That's right. Uh, There's a joke among uh, really this, huge yeah. losers like myself who went to grad school for science. <laughs> uh, the joke Ooh. is that entropy just isn't what it used to be. And Dude, it's funny because it's always increasing. Get the fuck out of here. I've been there waiting is. for the sound effects to come <laughs> there back. There it is. I, I, hit the, I missed the I've button. Been, and then I hit I've been trying. Uh, I've been trying to get you to bring those bad boys back, man. All right. Let's. I forgot. I keep forgetting. I gotta get some new ones. Maybe some movies. Sorry, you mentioned Isaac Asimov. I got Isaac Asimov. He has this quote about the Half Life of Knowledge, and he says, "And I quote: When people thought the Earth was flat, they were wrong. When people thought the Earth was spherical, they were wrong. But if you think that thinking the Earth is spherical is just as wrong as thinking the Earth is flat, you are wronger than both of them put together. And what that implies to me, Chris, is it's not whether or not something is true. It's are you part of the progression? So the earth is flat. Nope. We all thought that. Not so. Then the earth Which, is Which, by a the sphere. way, that's a misconception. Not everybody thought the earth was flat, but you For get sure. the idea. You're correct. The earth is a sphere, like a, a bouncy ball. Also not true. It's like this oblong thing. But now, considering the earth to be a sphere is much closer to correct than flat. Yep. And here we go. We are progressing. And I want to talk about some practical applications because I have one in mind that I think is really, really, really interesting. You and I played, I would say high school sports at a various, at a fairly high level. Like we weren't, you know, we, we, were, we were never going to get drafted into the NFL, but we played sports. Look, I'll, t- I'll tell you, people yeah. are very impressed. I, I never bring this up, mm. because, obviously, because I'm an adult. <laughs> But if it does come up, people yeah. are very impressed when I say, oh, yeah, I was an all-state athlete. Yeah. Uh, what they don't realize is that Wyoming. the state is Wyoming. Wyoming, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's mathematically the easiest place. Like, you know, d- no disrespect yeah. to all the all-state athletes out there, all the high school athletes trying their best in, uh, in good old Wyoming. But, uh, yes, know, it was just the bar is just lower. It's, yeah, it's statistically, it's more likely you'll be an all-state athlete in Wyoming. So, okay. That's right. In athletics, nutrition, fitness, what I find is if you wait five years, whatever you're doing right now to become physically fit, whether that's to gain strength, to gain flexibility, to lose weight, is just wrong. And you find out like, uh, there's seems there appears to be some scientific backing that what you used to do is wrong. However, this is the other part of the half-life of knowledge that I find interesting, and we'll get into it with legal and medical education. There's also the opportunity for people to pull your leg and make it seem like what you thought was always wrong. So right now, uh, a trend among the fitness community is about calorie deficits for losing weight. So the idea for, for eating food calories and burning calories of energy with your body to lose weight is something that people are kind of calling into question. And the people who are scientifically trained on this are like, no, it's a very simple equation. If you eat more than you burn, you will gain probably fat, maybe some other stuff, but probably fat. However, we're learning about what to eat, when to eat. Remember the food pyramid and how fake that fucking thing was? Yeah, I, I was like, oh about. man, I'm, I'm, I'm like the food pyramid master. I know everything about the food pyramid. And then like years later, they're like, oh, they're changing the food pyramid. This is because yeah. of this uh, uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. I, th- I think I was like the Bush administration or yeah. 
I think yeah. the Bush and Obama's so they made it like a square, and then it's upside down, and I don't know. Well, it was like a pyramid with like like stripes vertically going down. It was like divided into segments yeah. of smaller like triangles or whatever. And I was like, this is this is not my food pyramid. Uh, but it turns out <laughs> the food pyramid that we were raised on uh, is a bunch of horse hockey. It doesn't really make any difference. Right. You still got to burn more calories than you take in to lose weight, but the food pyramid is incorrect. And that's kind of what we're getting at here is that we're learning more about nutrition and we're learning more about the way the human body works. The biggest trend right now in professional athletics is, get this, sleep and flexibility. Sleep huh. is super important. Crazy. Who knew? Yeah, absolutely crazy. But that's just one example to kind of illustrate kind of what we're talking about. And this has been something that's been going on forever. We've been talking about the earth is flat, the earth is round. That's another one. Yeah. That, well, so there, there are huge like scientific theories that go back that I think are, are like, it's one thing to have difficulty keeping up with a rapidly evolving field of study. And also, I should point out, like, when you talk about examples like the Earth being flat, I mean, there was just less scientific research taking place. I mean, it, it was kind of limited to people who were able to make observations and, like, really smart people who were able to put stuff together and kind of, like, people with money who can do, like, chemical research. Like, being a researcher, like a Blaise Pascal, that was, like, a, a vocation in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. And so... I think it's worth pointing out that, like, science is much more egalitarian now. People are able to do much more research. I mean, like, really anybody who goes to, like, a college, like a community college or university can, like, go apply to do research and, like, become a researcher and get their name on a paper and and, and contribute to the broader body of scientific knowledge. Uh, But there are still some theories that, if you go back in time, are, like, really good examples of this. Have we talked about phlogiston on the show? I feel Um, like we've had this discussion. Flagellation? No. Fla- flagellation, not fla- not <laughs> oh, flagellation. Flagiston, no, no. Flagiston, no, neither. Yeah. Okay, so flagiston is um, th- this is from uh, Britannica. Mm-hmm. So flagiston in early chemical theory is uh, it- it's it's okay. Flagiston was this hypothetical substance which was part of everything that you could set on. Oh fire. no 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 no! This is called phlogiston. Phlogiston? Yes. This is oh, the, I learned a lot about I was like, what the fuck? Phlogiston. Everybody phlogiston. thought phlogiston was the answer to all of life's problems. Yes. Okay. Go on. Well, phlogiston, for those of you who want to pronounce it a weird way. Yes. What that meant was when you burn something, phlogiston or phlogiston is liberated from the substance. So people measured a, like a chunk of wood or whatever. Mm-hmm. They measured the weight of it. They set it on fire. And then they measured the weight of the ashes and the remains and the charcoal and whatever else. And they realized, holy shit, the ashes and charcoal weigh a lot less than the original piece of wood. So what's mm-hmm. going on here? And it, it was no, I, I think when phlogiston was was developed, it was developed in 1669 uh, by Johann jo- uh, Joachim Becker. Yeah, Becker. Uh, yeah. He said that uh, there are basically three kinds of earth. And every substance contains three kinds of earth. Uh, which uh, he called the vitrifiable, so you can like turn it into glass, mm-hmm. uh, the mercurial, and the combustible. And so the the different proportion of those kinds of earth he thought made up like the chemical composition. Where, well, he wouldn't have used the term chemical composition, but he, he that makes the up known what universe. every yeah. substance is made up. Yeah. And so when you set something on fire, when you combust it, you liberate the phlogiston. You liberate the material that's combustible, that, that part of earth. Mm-hmm. And that explains why the thing that you set on fire weighs less after the chemical reaction than it did before. Right. Um, makes a lot of sense. People have this whole body of work about like, oh, yeah, here's how you can calculate phlogiston flow and what's the what's the rate of combustion, what's the rate of liberation of this material. And as it turns out, we all know way better now. Uh, the average high schooler now knows way more than, uh, than Becker 
that's a bunch of horseshit. Yeah. There's no there's no three kinds of earth. There's not this vitrifiable, mercurial, combustible earth. There is no phlogiston. It was completely wrong, and yet there is this entire worldview, this scientific worldview about how chemical processes take place based on this theory. There were a bunch of facts that kind of fit the theory. There was a lot of information. There was a lot of work done to develop it. Uh, and at the end of the day, it turned out to be just straight up wrong. Yeah. So what's really interesting, though, is that you said it was horseshit. And I would say that it's that's a fine line. It was not horseshit. It was just wrong, which is two different things, because all that's, of the theories were they were no, correct factually at the time with the evidence they had available. And then as science advances, you, you learn that it is incorrect at the time. Another good like alchemy is a great theory. If you're, you're going through medieval times and the early Renaissance, like let's turn this shit into gold. That seems to be fair enough. You're like, okay, well, that's, let's just see if we can make it happen. Let's try really hard to make this thing happen. We find out now that's like changing the composition of a chemical element is not something they would, they would have been able to do. It is not really how that works. It, there was some weird magic involved as well. That's not possible. But, I mean, a side uh, quest here, this is this phlogiston shit and also the four humors of Aristotle, which I will mention here in a moment. Those things are great pitch for my journal of negative results because it would have just yes. if they had read the journal of negative results we would have known this pretty quickly that's right you don't need to go back and, and try mean, to rediscover phlogiston you guys it's it's already established it's correct so the list of four humors very similar situation aristotle believed that the world every part of the human body was made up of black bile phlegm yellow bile and blood that's what our bodies are composed of and this aristotle was such a god of philosophy this ruined the advancement of medicine for like 1200 years they're like well aristotle says like oh well aristotle said it so it's obviously he's a god we can't question this and i think it was it might have been saint francis of assisi who was the first to be like mm, this doesn't seem no we should talk about this i think francis it was well he was, he was the first person to be like he was the first person to debunk aristotle as like above reproach and then that's sort of at the university of paris in the 1200s 12 yeah, well, 1200s I, no you're i think you're thinking of uh st thomas aquinas aquinas yep it was not francis you're yeah. right i got them yeah, totally the, confused 100 thomas the, aquinas the face of the scholastic yes movement he yeah. was the first person to be like we should figure this out and in paris in the 1200 1290 as what 1290 something in my brain was like okay let's just look at aristotle and see what is bullshit and they found that the philosophy thumbs up everything else thumbs down and that's when they started asking questions which is the same thing at that point we just accepted that this is the smartest guy ever this is what he says fuck it let's roll with it well and and aristotle had also a lot to say about metaphysics that was relevant to like church scholarship at the time mm -hmm. so he, yeah he, he talked about stuff like transubstantiation and like uh, that aristotelian thought is kind of the basis of, of, of how a lot of like the religious beliefs within the church so sure. there was there was a very uh I, I don't want to say symbiotic because that's like applying a modern lens to to the way that knowledge was understood the the, the differentiating line between what would we would consider science today and what we would consider like theology or religion in the time of like Thomas Aquinas was writing. I, I don't know that it really existed or that it was like, I, I don't think it was a clearly definable thing. You know, there, there's this, there's this modern take that uh, science and religion are incompatible or like the slightly enlightened view that like maybe science and religion aren't incompatible. Uh, I think to Thomas Aquinas, that would have been probably a ridiculous premise. Like, I don't know what, you're, I don't know what you're discussing here. Like, there's nature and there's everything else. Like, scientists weren't called scientists; they were called natural philosophers. Correct. Yep. It, so, I, I think, I think there's something to be said for like this. Isn't that's not an example of like the half life of knowledge? Like Saint Thomas Aquinas didn't know what he was talking about. Now we know better that science and religion are completely different things. I think that's that says a lot to do with like 
movement, like cultural movements, yeah. social movements. I think it has a lot to do with just like the way worldviews are propagated. I think the egalitarian nature of knowledge and information today has resulted in a lot of uh, kind of like the stove piping that we see. We, you know, we, we talked about, we talked recently on the show about how scientific research is becoming more and more yep. specialized. It's yep. hyper-focused on really detailed stuff. And so somebody who does scientific research on a given topic today is a lot more likely to be like the world expert on it than somebody who would have been, I don't know, 500 years ago, 800 years ago. And I, I think it's just, it, it speaks to the way that knowledge is transferred or interpreted differently. And that's not to say that, like you said, St. Thomas Aquinas wasn't wrong about that. He no. was just writing at a different time. He was thinking at a different time. Yeah, no, he and was right. So, he was absolutely yeah, right. Yeah. But he wasn't, but it wasn't horseshit, which is also like, I mean, I'm glad you said that. And I'm glad you, I called you on that because yeah, that's, that's a great yeah. example for this. No, you, you're a good point. Yeah, that, that was, that was a good point. You got, you got to hold my feet to the fire on that. Yeah. Cause like, you know, that that's, uh, C.S. Lewis had this term called, um, he said, uh, people engage in chronological snobbery when they assume <laughs> that just because they arrived on the timeline at a later point, that they're somehow better and more informed and more enlightened than those that came mm -hmm. before them. Like guys. The, the the wisdom of the ancients, the wisdom of the classical period, the wisdom of the medieval period, the dark ages, like so much more and uh, so much more informed and wise than uh, than we give credit for. I think, generally speaking, yeah. I I mean, we look back and be like, when, when people make the excuse and then also, um, I guess, snub the excuse that it was a different time. I think is an inappropriate way to look at history because it. it, it it prevents you from informing the present. When you look at Isaac Newton's theory of, of gravity, which would become relativity and different forms of physics, you're like, this is amazing shit. And then it becomes like kind of true and then proven wrong here and there. And then, it, but it informs a bunch of other fields of study for years and years. And that advances everything else. A rising tide in science truly lifts all boats, which is sort of w what we're getting at here. Okay. So <clears throat> I want to pivot a little bit because medicine is, I don't, I, I, I would argue that medicine is probably where the most active, scientific research field is which makes a ton of sense because all of us would really like not to die and not to suffer in our death so well people are looking and into as a as a guy who's been working in the medical field and is married to a medical to that. expert yeah, that, yeah of course that, that's that's going to be a bias that said uh, i i mean it's a hop skip and a jump to get from really any scientific research of that has anything to do with like biology or chemistry to medicine somehow so i i, I guess that's a that's a fair like it's fair to say, I think, that medicine comprises a huge body of scientific work that is underway today. Yeah, I, and and it's 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 because it's so simple. Like you can get they have phases of trials. You can get to this thing. You try this on that. Like every, it is a system, and it is also required for many doctors to do some sort of research. So they have a bunch of uh, guinea pigs that are like, "Hey, do this research for this person." It's a system, and it makes a ton of sense mm -hmm. in pharmaceutical industries and surgical industries and blah 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 blah. But sure. the medical industry and the legal industry both understand that what they're teaching now won't necessarily be true. And I love the juxtaposition between those two things. It is required in the United States that doctors and lawyers complete what are called CLE, continuing legal education or CME credits to continue to practice medicine or to continue to practice law, which is then proving to your clients slash patients that you are not stuck in the area where you graduated law school, which I love that. What's interesting to me is that legal education, continuing legal education is not necessarily continuing on the ideas that are foundational to the law. It is simply keeping you updated on case law and different things that are going on. Whereas continuing medical education, they're saying like scientifically, that thing that you were taught 10 years ago, that is not only not the best way forward, that is the wrong way forward. You need to know that because your patients can't trust you otherwise. 
Yeah, well, and, and I think that's true and important to consider in you know, basically any field mm-hmm. that has to do with like applying information and knowledge to a set of problems. Uh, in 2002, uh, the president of the National Academy of Engineering, this guy named William Wolfe, said that the half-life of engineering knowledge, biological or otherwise, is about two and a half to seven years. And mm. really, I think as time has gone on, people have realized that that estimate is on the shorter end of the range. So, yeah. like, it doesn't take very long for information to be uh, kind of overturned or uh, found to be inaccurate or improved upon. And, you know, th- that's not to say that, like, well I, I, well, I guess, you know, all, all knowledge here is is kind of subject to this. So, like, the, like the basic building blocks aren't going to go. It's not like we're going to wake up one morning and realize, like, oh, there is no gravity. There is no relativity. Everything was wrong. And then, like, the universe flies apart. Like, that's not how that works. One, there, there was a joke on, on QI uh, on a completely different episode. It was about uh, set theory and mathematics. And people realize, like, set theory produces all these, like, these confusing paradoxes. And, and I think we're going to do a math episode about – or a math episode about – uh, Russell's paradox about set yeah, theory. Sure, but anyway, the, the, there was this joke that uh, he took. Bertrand Russell was like this enormously influential logician, and he took all this time to develop the the symbolic logic that mathematically proves that one plus one equals two. And it took like a huge amount. It was like a paragraph. It's like these really obscure logic symbols, and uh, it's like a funny thing that you have to go back to like first principles like that and go through all this symbolic logic. And this guy goes, this guy David Mitchell is like, oh, you know, it's a little late to be proven that we're here in the 20th century. We have a complex international economy, a lot of engineering happening. It's like, what, what, what happens if we realize that it doesn't like we, we, we prove that it doesn't equal to, then what do we do? So it, it's not to say that like, you should never trust the scientific basis of like what experts are saying, what, what, what information experts have to offer. It's that they're working with the best available information that they possibly yeah. have. Yeah. And I, I trust that that, that that is true, but I do have some interesting an interesting anecdote one maybe we could do an entire episode about placebo effects um because they are fascinating there is one that blew my mind and i want to find the the scientific journals where this is study mbr reported on it the atlantic wrote about it so the, the atlantic article that i have up right now i can't find the npr report because it was mostly just audio the atlantic piece that i have up right now is 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 very atlanticy um for example <laughs> You know exactly what I mean. After yes, 40 years, millions of procedures and billions of dollars, yes. Uh, so it starts out with a doctor stands over your feet and feeds a long wire up the inside of your body. And I'm like, I don't have this kind of time. How about we talk about the facts? A doctor stands above my okay. But the idea is there's a, there's a procedure called an angioplasty where researchers in Britain found in a couple times they, they would open the person up and they would do this angioplasty, but they found when they opened them up, that the anatomy or the situation was worse than they thought. And like, well, we can't proceed. And they closed them up. They closed them up and the person started to feel better. And then they started to just be better. And they're like, what? And so they've, uh, there's research on this procedure and there's not like thousands of people. I think like these so, couple dozen. So, so they, they just, they, they basically did like, was like, could you consider it a, a, a impromptu exploratory surgery where they just like open it up like so, this is way yeah. worse than we thought this close is up a, we'll try something else and then that happens a lot after that? actually in surgery they 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 that happens a lot where like if you you have scans you're like okay well this is where things look to be you open it up and you're like actually like this procedure is deadly we should recommend palliative care and you should be you know you should aim for being comfortable because the surgery is going to kill you or it's going to make the last two years of your life look really really shitty and that like something that cancer patients face mm-hmm. a lot yeah. So this angioplasty thing is for a different part of your body, right? Your cardiovascular cardiovascular system. So they open them up, sure. they close them up, and she's like, he or she, I don't know, got better. And then they the started patient. to be like, 
yes, the patient got better and they're like, what the fuck is going on? And they did it a couple more times. And so in America, placeboing is illegal. Doctors are not allowed to say they're giving you something without actually giving it to you, which is an interesting debate. Um, I am on yeah, board. A lot, of, and, a lot of ethics questions. That, like, yes. Okay. Really. If you, if you went to a doctor that, like, okay, understanding that, that the placebo effect is powerful as evidenced by yeah. the angioplasty and many other story. things. Yeah. Yeah. So understanding that that's a real actual phenomenon. If you went to a doctor, the doctor diagnosed you with a disease, said, I'm going to give you a treatment for that disease. And then you found out later that whether you got better or not, that you actually didn't get treatment. Your doctor lied to you. Like if that happened to me, I'd be pissed. Right. I'd be absolutely livid. Right. So there, but the, the question for, and this is why the episode we get, the question becomes, where is the line? Like yeah. if someone wants opioids and you're like, you're in pain, but like, what if we just tell them it's opioids and it's just ibuprofen and then they feel a little better. You're like, mm. I feel like that's that's when the doctor's like, oh, uh, this is the strongest thing we have for you. Right, exactly. And so, like, but if it is better for everybody that you don't get the opioids. So, like, there are, it's, it's a little bit more convoluted. Regardless, they didn't, like, how are you going to, you can't get a bunch of people with a heart disease and say, like, okay, you're going to be in the cohort that doesn't get the surgery now because the surgery, we're pretty sure, helps you. But then they found out, they're like, what is going on with this thing? So, we're going to, I want to find the scientific research on this because they did it to, like, a couple dozen people and a lot of them, uh, got better and not like, and this is the weird thing about this placebo effect, Chris, that they didn't feel better. They got better. That that's the shocking thing to me. Yes. It's like, like, okay, when I get sick, uh, I, I don't know if, if any of the women out there listening to both, either of the women out there listening to this episode <laughs> will ever be able to appreciate just how hard it is for a man to get sick. The man flu is um, not, it's contagious I, too, women. If you cohabitate with a man, you can become man flued hard. That's right. Well, you know, I, I just there's just no there's just no experience in the corpus of, uh, of no they can't possibly understand feminine living that no. uh, that could possibly help you understand. So it's so difficult. Uh, but I soldier <laughs> on anyway, and I do that through the use of I just ply myself with nonstop chemical uh, medicines. I, 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 I and, yeah. chug Dayquil as often as possible. I'm taking ibuprofen. I'm I, halls like I'm like the halls master. I'm single handedly keeping those guys in business. Uh, so I constantly just like use medicine to feel better. And so to me, like the priority when I'm like kind of ill like that is like, I want to get better, but ultimately I want to get better because I want to feel better. I'm tired of right. feeling like crap. I'm tired of being in discomfort or whatever. So, but for a serious illness, for something like a heart problem or cancer or whatever the case is. So you're saying that it's not just that people feel better if they think they've been treated they actually see a scientific or a medically verifiable reduction yeah. in like symptoms. So I have to find the scholarly work here. And I know that there are one or two studies on this. And I know that the rest of the studies have kind of been shut down, which you think like, well, we need to look into this again, more complicated because patients have rights. You can't be like, okay, do you want to participate in the trial where you don't get the fucking thing? And then we have to follow you for five years and you could die. No. So uh, it's, it's not quite so simple as like, we need to look into this. They have looked into it and it's, 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 and I got, I got to figure out exactly what's going on. But what I'm saying is yes, the surgery for some people, they faked it. The patient didn't know they faked it and they got better without medicine, which raises a bunch of questions is getting back to the half-life of knowledge. Like what the fuck is going on here? So well, the well, other that also thing gives you, that also gives you the, the question of like, what is the point of medicine? Is the point yeah. of medicine to treat you or is it to heal you? Mm -hmm. I get, like you, you go seek, you go seek medical care because you have a disease and you want to not have that disease anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you are cured, even though you didn't get the treatment that you expected or were told you were going to get. It's like, well, did they 
did they really treat you? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, at the end of the day, like, it kind of well, who cares if you, like, I, I would be mad that I would be lied to, but I also would prefer, I would rather be lied to, I guess, and not be ill anymore yeah. than to get the treatment that I was told and come to find out, like, yeah, it's not as effective as, as if they had done nothing. I, I, <laughs> right. yeah, well, that's actually. I'd be the most mad if they told me they were going to give me a treatment, did, and then I saw somebody else who didn't get the treatment getting better. I'd be yes. pissed about that. Right, and then it's it's surgery. Like, it hurts yes. really bad when they cut like shit inside surgery. of you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the the idea that, like, you could possibly get better for this, and then again, like, what do you do? The, the real question for me is, like, once they tell you that it was fake, then do you get worse? Like, what happens? Yeah. So yeah, like, like uh, actually, we gave you a head fake, and uh, we've just broken your ankles. So the, the the other part of this that's that's really interesting to build off of for me, and like again, this is the this is the research that begs to question. When we have crises, it kind of questions a lot of stuff. You test the systems in medicine during the pandemic. You're like the first big fear is like people who live with domestic abusers, people who live with substance abuse. Like this is going to be tough people who live with depression like there is going to be it's called an echo pandemic which is um the scientific term is deaths of despair which are deaths as a result of the, the deadly virus so it's the secondary pandemic one thing that's fascinating is that people with specific heart and blood issues there hasn't been the rush of death that we thought there would be as a result of them not being able to go to the hospital um, I still got to follow up on that because it's going to take years to compile all of that information. So like, for and, example, and remember what we know now is not the same as what we're going to know in correct. five, 10, 15 years because correct. knowledge decays, deteriorates, is replaced and is refined. Right. So people like, do you need to go to the hospital for your, your heart thing? You have a heart thing. And then they didn't go. And so they're, what they're trying to figure out now is like, did those people die? Because we thought for sure that they would. Um, and pe- many people with depression that's, and suicidal ideation and addiction, they did die. And it was really, it's really, really, really sad. Many hundreds of thousands of people. But there are also cases where you're like, where are all the cancer patients? Are they yeah. alive? Because if they are, weird. Right. So like that's, and that's sort of what we're talking about. Like we can't find out these big earth shattering things um, in normal circumstances. And then if, if, if something questions a, a principle that we have long held dear, at what point are we like, huh? Yeah, like this is something that we knew for sure. And I'm not sure it's actually happened in our lifetime. The, oh, the biggest example I have is like, what the hell is Pluto? Like, <laughs> like what are we doing? Who cares? I, I don't care. Pick, well, a, pick, pick a fucking side. Well, I got, I got two things for you on this one. So, so Pluto is like, I'm, I'm in the Pluto planet club. Okay. Uh, you know, th- this like weird kind of orbiting astro. Like if it looks like a planet, if it sounds like a planet, if it fits in the My Very Excellent Mother Just Sent Us Nine Pizzas, like... <sighs> I, I refuse to accept that. It's like my very excellent mother just sent us nine what? Like, there's nothing out there. Uh, but regardless <laughs> of that, I, there, there are, I think I've got two examples for you, one of which happened like in the last month. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of like public affairs issue. That I, I think it's dying down by the time that we're, we're going to put this on the air, but uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, recent phenomenon. Uh, the, the first one is from QI, again, uh, on a completely different episode. What they, they have this running gag in the show where they ask questions about like the moon. Uh, one, of the, one of the questions was, uh, how many moons does the Earth have? And on the first, the, they buzz in, the guy goes, uh, one. And they, it's wrong, and they have this gag where they play, blare this klaxon if somebody says an, ob, an answer that seems obvious but is actually wrong. Uh, so they blare the klaxon, and they said, oh, yeah, Earth actually has uh, two moons because there's like one, like a shadow moon discovered out in this outer orbit, but it's like been too small to classify as a moon until now. And they're like, how can you have more than one moon? Like, it's the moon. 
So then in later episodes, they would ask the same thing, and someone like would buzz in, get the klaxon again, and then the other person would say, no, I know the answer. It's two, because we already had it on the show. And they blare the klaxon again. They say, well, the Earth actually has a bunch of moons, because some of them are artificial satellites, and like they classify those as moons or whatever. Boo, uh, and then one moon. The, and then they do that like two or three more times, and on the last one, they said uh, the answer is zero. And by that time, like all the regulars on the show are like gun shy. They're like, oh, no, I'm not falling for this one again. Because no matter what I say, it's going to be wrong. And they, they, the last thing they said, uh, the most recent episode that I've seen the moon question on, was that the Earth and the moon are actually a binary planet system. And so the moon doesn't really orbit the Earth. They both orbit a central point of gravity because like the center of gravity, these two massive objects, is probably somewhere in the middle. And they're both orbiting around that. And that is the point that orbits around the sun. So they've refined this body of scientific knowledge. And I, I think Stephen Fry was the host of the show, and he was asking all those questions. What a legend. He was on the show. They, the, the way they do it is every season is a letter of the alphabet, and they do a bunch of episodes within that letter uh, for like the theme of the show. Uh, and he made it up through series M. So I don't know if that means he was on the show for 13 years or if they, they did seasons in, in a different way. But he was on the show for several years. And, but even during that time, it was less than 15 years. And during that time, there were several different theories about how many moons does the Earth have? This very obvious sounding question. And it's completely different. <sighs> Jesus Christ. I, the one I can see is the only one that counts. Well, I mean, yeah, like functionally, it doesn't make a difference. And so yeah. like when it gets down, gets down to it, like the fact that these guys in the modern world, it's like the, the Stephen Fry left the show in, I don't know, 2015, 2014 or something. Old, the fact yeah. that these guys in the 21st century can't give an answer to a question that seems fairly obvious. It's like you know, functionally, what's the difference between that and like, I don't know, ancient peoples worshiping the moon? Or yeah. ancient peoples like uh, recognizing like the divinity of the fact that the moon lights our way at night. I, I mean, I, I don't really know. Like, like it, it really like highlights the uh, the chronological snobbery, the C.S. Lewis idea. It's like mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, uh, what we know and what we don't know. Like we're, we're getting into like the philosophy of, of knowledge here, the field of uh, epistemology. But if functionally, I don't really know what the significance is of like being right about this. Yeah, uh, in a way that matters to people in day to day life. Yeah, and that, I guess like, of course, you and I are, are very pro scientific research and like want things to happen and all that. But Big like, research it's, 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 it's it's true to me that if you were just mangling the words about something that is or isn't true, and remember my triangle of, of, of experience, the experience. Oh triangle, yeah, That's fact, right. truth, and um, reality are all. By the way, three different I'm going to submit that as the first entry in the journal of wrong. No, the, ju prove the journal it. of nothing. Prove it. Prove that it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> prove a negative yeah so, so this this idea that we have something that we can all observe like well let's tinker with it to me there is a there is a culture in academia of spe specifically among grad students who according to tina fey and alec baldwin are the worst people in the world <laughs> love grad students uh whatever the there seems to be an, an air <laughs> where you just need to get published or you just want to be famous for being the person that calls something into question. Like, actually, it makes you look like a fool to make us go round and round and round about this. Like, so now we're defining what a moon is. I don't give a shit about the satellite that gives me television. The moon is the moon. Yeah, but, but then th there's also a bigger problem of like we're, we're we, we've talked about conspiracies a lot on the show. Like the, the, the challenge I think that people have in understanding this topic, this half-life of knowledge is that you should not take this as license to just like question everything that's yes. even if it seems obviously true. Yes. And that's highlighted by like these conspiracists who like genuinely believe the earth is flat. Like I cannot believe 
with how much knowledge and information and how much ancient wisdom there is about this and how much like classical literature there is about this. Like the earth is an oblate spheroid, uh, whatever shape you want to call it, it's not flat. And the fact that we're actually giving, you know, genuine intellectual attention to people who claim that it is, it is ridiculous to me. It's not, it's not that like, we don't live in a world of alternative facts. You can't just make up your own shit if you don't like the facts that are presented before you. And you can't lean on the half-life of knowledge like, well, you know, you don't know if that's going to be true in a few years. So therefore I get to decide what is real and what right, isn't. Right, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That, like, that is horse shit. That's, yeah. not, that's not somebody taking... Like the fact that we gain new knowledge over time, that's not somebody taking that at face value. That's somebody being a little shit and <laughs> yeah. like trying to invent their own reality so that other people have to go along with them and like secure their interests and, and whatever else. That is the kind of nonsense that I think we need to be attentive to when understanding like, okay, our knowledge of the present is imperfect, but that's because our knowledge is going to grow and improve over time. And so while we shouldn't take everything today we hear as gospel, we should have a reasonable understanding of like the basics generally probably are true. And if they're not yeah. true, we're going to find out a better version of the basics later on. It's not that our worldview is going to be completely upended in a foundational way. It's that our understanding of the way the world that we move through is going to improve over time. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, so it's gonna, it's, we're going to become, as, as, as um, Asimov said, it's essentially you're going to get less wrong. If you're going to be wrong, like we're going to be wrong about the earth being oblong, a, a spheroid, but we're not going to be wrong about it not being flat. Yeah, Those are two it, different it, things. It, exactly. And I think, you know, there, there's a, the, the second thing that I wanted to talk about about this is a current event that I, I think really brings us to bear in, in terms of how we, uh, it's, it's related to education. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you've heard this, uh, but in the last month, Montana, uh, the Montana oh, state legislature. I'm going to hate this, this from, so much. I'm going to hate yeah, this. Yeah, this guy from Great Falls. Let me see if I can find the right article I was looking at. So uh, Canada. Yeah, so there was a bill uh, from this uh, Great Falls Republican uh, Senator Daniel Emrich. Mm. Uh, and it the bill was to ban the teaching of any information in science classes that is not a scientific fact. Uh so, uh, like, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying uh, to find the, the the text of the bill. Uh, let's see. So this is from the Daily Montanan. Uh, uh, the bill from the Great Falls Republicans seeks to create a new portion of law that states that all science education, and this is in quotation marks, may not include subject matter that is not scientific fact. All right. So the bill would would have school boards, the school like individual school boards within the district would review science material to be sure that they only use scientific fact in what is described as a strictly enforced and narrowly interpreted fashion. So uh, naturally, so, okay. There, I think oh, there this two, is about gender. Okay, I got it. Well, I mean, yeah, this is... <laughs> I was like, is this thing. about global warming? No, it's about gender. Okay. No, it's, yeah, this is, this is a political thing. And so I, I think two things are simultaneously true. I, number one, I think a lot of media websites that love to generate outrage uh, mm -hmm. took this and ran with it. Yeah. Uh, and I also think that this demonstrates a phenomenal misunderstanding of what the scientific process is uh, by this guy who introduced the bill. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how malicious his intent was, but the, the bill. Uh, so, so here's some good news before we get any angrier about this. Uh, <laughs> according to uh, the, Let's see, what town is this? The Fairfield Sun-Times. Uh, that bill was tabled in committee in the Montana State Legislature. So they're not talking about that anymore. How embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was tabled by uh, an 11 to no 
or an, an 11 to zero vote to table. So they're not talking about this anymore. This is not going like this is a ridiculous bill. And people rightly pointed out like that's not what a the, the point is like, oh, well, if we're teaching kids theories, then they're not able to figure out what's true and what isn't. Yeah, and, but that's not what a scientific theory actually is. Like people think, like a theory is a guess that you can feel free to ignore. It's not. Yeah. So like I, a, like evolution, like when we, when we were in high school, I feel like evolution was still like really, really at the fr- forefront of people's minds. Like for whatever reason, that was like the issue du jour of like the science classroom. It's like, well, you know, you have to also teach intelligent design alongside this theory because it's just a theory. And like, yeah, like, no. When, when you and I say colloquially, like, I have a theory, like, we're, we're using it in the same sense as, like, a detective in a, a noir film. Like, yeah. oh, I got a theory about who the killer is. Like, no, okay, <laughs> fine. You can test that. In science, a theory is a body of knowledge that's developed over time and refined with empirical evidence, but that describes the phenomenology of an observed fact. Phenomenology, so, love that word. Holy shit, I've never heard that word. Well, I, I mean, look. Great yeah, I, word. Look, no, look, you're right. Look, I, look, I think education right there. I love St. Augustine has a couple of uh, observations as a philosopher that I find really interesting. And one was that the, the, the only real problem with humanity is that we simply miscommunicate and there are not enough words to accurately describe every situation. In American English, we all use theory when we mean hypothesis. That happens yep. constantly. We don't have a theory about who the killer is. We have a hypothesis about who the killer is. It happens constantly. Secondly, the the, the gap in knowledge between the general public and the scientific community is enormous. There was a TikTok that just went viral about what sick means. When you're sick, you're like, I'm really sick. I need to go to the hospital. Doctor's like, you can breathe. You know your name and you can talk. You're not sick. Fuck off. I don't have time for this. Sick is like, you're going to die imminently. That's sick. So, but it, for you, it is also sick. So for, for us to say, well, this is a scientific theory. It's not proven yet. Back to my experience triangle. The amount of actual facts are tiny. There are like nine facts. There are like no facts because it is impossible for something to become a law. That's a different level of holy shitness. There really are not very many of them out there. So to say something that's not a theory, but when scientists use theory, the general public is like, oh, you're guessing based on what's out there. Like, well, I'm going to guess a different way. Nope. That's a hypothesis. Feel free to test your hypothesis, flat earthers. I have, do science. And they have, and they've been proven wrong on camera. By themselves, which is hilarious. Incredible. Uh, There's a quote in this Daily Montana article uh, from an AP biology teacher named Kimberly Popham. Uh, She teaches uh, AP bio at uh, Belgrade High School. Uh, and I, I just think this is like the perfect encapsulation of like how to understand like the, the state of imperfect knowledge. So uh, th- thanks to uh, uh, Kimberly Popham. Uh, she says, science is an ongoing process. And as we continue to question and learn more about our world, the evidence that makes up a theory is added to it. Science education has a responsibility to teach the young people of Montana the true process of science. And she goes on, if we don't teach our students what a scientific theory is and how we got them and how it differs from other types of theories or from differs from other theories and that it's always going to be supported by empirical evidence, we'll be doing them a disservice. Right. And I think that's a perfect encapsulation. Like it, 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 it's, it shows a real scientific illiteracy to think that a theory means the same thing as a guess or a theory means the same thing as like, oh, yeah, I have an idea, but it's not for sure. Like, no, in science, that word carries freight and mm. that freight is different from what it does from what it is colloquially. And, you know, you, you, you got to understand, like, the way we see the world now is imperfect. It's likely to improve over time. But that doesn't mean that you should mistrust everything on face because of that. 
Yeah, and and also I think the the biggest hypocrisy is that if you are distrusting one side but trusting another side, that inherently proves that you can't be trusted at all because if the process is right for one, it can't be wrong for the other. I think the greatest example of this is Joe Rogan is is has a a product that is I mean it's been tested and he has invented a thing that is it's like this Silicon Valley biohacking bullshit that is better for you to help you sleep and stuff and they have placebo controlled phase three trials and it is effective and it's not ever indicated and indicated in medicine means prescribable it is but it's a thing that can help you feel better it's a good thing but he then will wants to say like, ivermectin is an interesting thing like no you can't have a placebo controlled thing that you're selling and then also tell me that ivermectin treats covid those two things don't work because if you think that ivermectin treats covid i can't buy your product now because yeah. the process to arrive at those is the same and that process is what we're, what we're talking about here like are we, you either believe in the process or we don't you can't pick yeah. sides based on who you want to be cool with or, or what side of the aisle you agree on. You either believe in it or you don't. And believe me, the other side, the left side, gets shit thrown in their face all the time. All the time as well. It seems like they don't, but they do. They do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very important to be critical of the possibility that, to critically think about the possibility that somebody is using, trying to use science to politicize a narrative, to advance their own interests, to, uh, I, I don't know, try to prove somebody wrong that they hate. Yeah. And a lot of that is based on other th things other than scientific information, the scientific process, like factual information. And like manipulation of the narrative is, is really, like there's a reason that science is such a battleground for political discussions. And it's because people think if they can politicize the expertise that goes into developing the body of fact that creates scientific theories, then they can use like the truth to get what they want and manipulate others and advance their own interests and advance their own agendas, advance their own narratives. Um, that happens basically from all camps. I don't even like using yeah. the phrase both sides because it's not really a both sides thing. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. People, like people are able to manipulate information uh, in a really creative way. And so like the half-life of knowledge, I think pre presents a double-edged sword for people who are excited about continually learning. That's a great opportunity for people who are trying to secure their own interests and politically browbeat people so that they can win seats and get money and donations and all this other kind of stuff. It also gives them an opportunity and an excuse to say like, look, we don't know the perfect truth. So we can't teach that, or we don't know what the actual facts are. So let's hold off on this. Uh, so I, I think this is a really, uh, it's a really interesting phenomenon and i think it's fascinating but i also think it can be kind of dangerous when people know just enough to be stupid but not enough to be critical and a little bit stoic about their approach to knowledge yeah and i, I this might be why we started the show like we just like want to talk have a talk a topic and talk about it and i think that um basing your identity off of how smart you are is a life filled with emptiness and you are yes. going to continually try to pursue uh, something that you will never attain, which is infinite wisdom. I mean, Einstein's the smartest yep. person alive. He's he died just like you're gonna die, man. Like there's right. not the pursuit. Of, knowledge is not the pursuit of happiness. Not at all. No, no, it is not. Uh, but these glasses, these glasses will not deteriorate. These will be around for a while. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, not if I steal them. Oh, you need reading glasses? Yeah, have fun. I need style. Mm. True. <laughs>